Well, we've come up to Luke 6 here, and we've got in the later part of the chapter what's been called the Sermon on, on the Plain. Uh, similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but uh, of course not, uh, not, quite, the, not quite the same. Um, Luke was, I think we, we can safely say, a, a doctor, the beloved physician. And as you probably know, it's been pointed out that if you go through his writing in Luke and Acts, there's a lot of medical language that's used. Now, doctors in those days were not, as we might imagine, doctors today. They were more, I would say, basically psychotherapists. Um, they obviously had limited actual knowledge of, uh, of medicine, and as, uh, as it's known today, and so they were more, I would say, into psychotherapy, basically to, to cure people. And it's significant, I think, that Luke in this chapter here notices the eye contact that Jesus maintained with those that were listening to him. Uh, if you look at Luke chapter 6 uh, here, um, verse 10, he looking round about on them all. It's as if we're focused, we're zoomed in, as it were, by the video camera right up onto, onto Jesus. And uh, later on in verse, verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Luke is watching very carefully at the eye movements of Jesus. And in fact, later on in Luke, you've got uh, this again in several places. And in fact, you get it all through the Gospels. But I think particularly in Luke, Luke 20, um, verse 17, Jesus looked around upon them and said, What then is this that is written, that the stone which the builders rejected, the same was made the head of the corner? And again, Luke 22, verse 61 um, the Lord, of course, turned and looked upon Peter. It's Luke who, who particularly uh, emphasizes that, that look of Jesus. And so, really, the essence, the bottom line of our Christian life is to focus upon him, upon Jesus. And this is why we're here to break bread, to kind of uh, focus that in, in physical terms upon him. Uh, and the impression that the Gospels give is really that we are a bunch of people who are following in the steps of those men that walked around Galilee. We are the continuation of the, the disciples, as they were, uh, walking around Galilee and the streets of Jerusalem with Jesus. And we also should reconstruct in our mind's eye, as far as we can, him as a person. Now, he emphasizes throughout his, his gospel, Luke, Luke does, the, the role of the poor, the disenfranchised, the women, etc., which again is sort of appropriate, I think, for a doctor, a, a good doctor, who is concerned about the human person. And he perceives in the work of Jesus a sort of a rolling back of all the barriers that have been put up against so many people of keeping religion and relationship with God bounded within uh, a sort of a religious or spiritual elite. And we who say that we know the truth, we who have figured out so many errors of theology, which there are in so many people, their ideas about the Trinity, the devil, etc., we easily can slip into the same mindset of putting up barriers whereby we feel that we are in some kind of elite because of theological purity. 
Now that is not by saying, by warning us about this, I'm not saying that doctrine does not matter, or that if you like, theology doesn't matter, that truth doesn't matter. Of course it does. God has spoken in his word, and therefore the interpretation of that word is, of course, important. It's very important. In the same way as if you are in relationship with anybody, to understand their words is, of course, so important, and to correctly understand. Now, in verse 20, he says, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And you remember the, the Lord's Prayer, yours, that is God's, is the kingdom, the power and the glory. God's is the kingdom, and yet, the, for the poor, yours is the kingdom of God. It's as if God is particularly uh, to be identified with the poor. And you get this uh, again in, in Hebrews, where the writer says, well done for the, uh, the things you did in giving uh, gen- generously to your poor brethren, because you did this for the name of the Lord. It's as if God is particularly happy to be identified with the little things, with the poor things, with the weak things. And really, looking through Old Testament history on an almost sort of Sunday school, uh, child, young child kind of level that you might teach it, you see this, you know. God uses little David, as he's presented, um, armed not with uh, human armor, human strength, but just with a stone, uh, etc., God uses people like that. God uses the rejected. You get it all through the judges. He uses the one who's despised by his brethren, the one who's left-handed and is uh, despised because of that. This is always the way it is. He chooses the inadequate, particularly with, with Gideon, when Gideon basically says, look, Lord, this is not for me. I'm not this kind of guy. I'm not a great man of faith. I, I'm, I'm not like that. I'm just a, a man from nowhere. And God says, go in this your strength. And so, no matter how capable we may be perceived to be in some areas of human life, even if, you know, you're an atomic physicist, let's say, and you may be looked up to in your particular sphere of learning and erudition, etc., the bottom line is that we all, in our heart of hearts, if we are really Christian and have the humility that is appropriate, for human beings, we feel deeply our inadequacy. And yet that inadequacy, that poverty of spirit, is exactly what God is, is looking for, and it is that which he uses. And time and again, when you consider how people come to conversion and to the Lord, it's nearly always through some very weak some very weak little thing that happens. Somebody finds a tract that's got a footprint on it lying on a sidewalk. Something like that. That's how God loves to work. Somebody finds an old book, Bible Basics or or whatever, lying around in a hotel room for some reason. It's those sort of indirect ways that God loves to work. And so he he makes his, his classic statements here, Uh, about the blessedness of the poor, verse 20, those that hunger, those that weep, verse 22, those who are hated by men and separated from their company, those who are reproached, whose name is cast out as evil, etc. It is exactly those people that God is working with. 
And if we are to be those on the Lord's side, we better perceive that we are in fact in that category. We may not physically be hungry. We may not literally be weeping. And yet, the more you know yourself, the more you will realize your hunger, your spiritual hunger, that you dearly wish you were not as you are in some aspect of your life. That weeping that you have for whatever reason, that separation of you from the company of others. Now, it's easy to think that that only applies to some people, but actually, in a sense, that is what will happen to all of us if we actually live the, the life that is in Christ. Now, talking about mourning and weeping, blessed are those who weep. But uh, the Greek word that's translated there, weep or mourn, it's very often used in the context of repentance. And remember that at the Day of Judgment, the rejected will mourn. They will weep and gnash their teeth. Matthew 8.12, lots of those references. So it's a choice. You either weep now in repentance, or you're going to weep at the Day of Judgment. And so in, in Joel 2, God uses that logic. Therefore, even now, right now, turn you to me with weeping and with mourning, because weeping and mourning is going to come upon you. So therefore have it now. Weep and mourn now in repentance, because weeping and mourning is going to come upon you. And so there's a logic here, that all the things that people are going to go through, the rejected will go through the day of judgment, in some sense we have to go through now. In the same way as when we were baptized, we died with Jesus. We met our death. And we also participated in his resurrection. Now going on to verse uh, 32. Remembering of course that these uh, verses here. This sermon on the plain. Which is as I say is similar to the sermon on the mount. This is the, the manifesto that Jesus is, is giving. This is the very essence of his teaching. And these, this chapter that we've read is you could say, one of the most important things that should be absolutely at the centre of Christian life, because this is all about the essence of how we should be living. So, in verse 32, let's just uh, focus on that. If you love them that love you, what thank or what praise do you have? For even sinners love those that love them. Now then, I think this is one of the most radical aspects of being a true follower of Jesus, that you will show the love that does not have, what he calls in the AV here, thanks, that does not have recognition in this life. And when we don't get recognition, we tend to get pretty narky about it, and we don't like it. I did so much for him or for her, it can be for your partner, for your children, for all sorts of people within the ecclesia, outside the ecclesia, and they didn't, you know, recognize it. Yeah, that's what love is. That is what love is. Serving, knowing that you are not going to get thank or, or praise. And yet we're told that at the day of judgment, then shall every man, Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, then shall every man have praise of God. Now, how's that going to work out? Well, in the Lord's parable, 
in Matthew 25, he says that he's going to come back and say to the, the righteous, well done, you did this, you did that, you gave me something to drink, you gave me something to eat, visited me in prison. He's going to list all their good deeds to them. That is what Paul means when he says, then shall every man have praise of God. But in this life, no. And in fact, the opposite. If in this life you get all that recognition, then what what thank will you have at the last day? It's a very, very powerful logic. And it cuts right through what we would prefer to hear. Because to understand that you, you suffer for doing good in this life and you get no thanks for it, that is the essence of Christianity. And that was the essence of the cross. That Jesus died unappreciated and rejected by those whom he came to save. And if he had not understood that, then I don't think psychologically he could have gone through with it. But he did, because he understood that love is serving without receiving any thanks in this life. Now, Jesus tried to uh, inculcate this positive spirit that he had in, in us. And in verse 35, I'd like to draw your attention to, uh, to the RV. Love your enemies, do them good, and lend, never despairing. And the RV margin says, never despairing of any man, and your reward shall be great in the kingdom. Now, the, the height of the, of the, the challenge here is so great. To do good, even to your enemies, never despairing. Despairing of no man. Well, the AV says, hoping for nothing again. But the idea is, not despairing. And so often, when you start to try to do good for others, you do despair. Preaching is an obvious example. You keep trying to put a word in for the Lord and swing conversations around and tell people about the gospel and people aren't interested and you end up despairing and you end up giving up when you go further and you try to help others nearly always the hand that feeds ends up getting bitten no good work goes unpunished and yet we all seem to start I think unconsciously anyway, uh, these kind of things, assuming that it will be appreciated. They would really like that now, wouldn't they? And they don't. You know, The very people that you do the most for turn against you. And yet, what I'm saying is that this should not shock and surprise us. This manifesto of the kingdom, of the kingdom life that Jesus is giving us here, this is telling us this in, in no uncertain terms. And yet he says, never despairing, despairing of no man. And really, I think that is really exemplified for us in the love of God toward us, towards humanity. When you think of all the possible futures that God has carefully designed for millions, if not billions of people, and the vast majority of them don't respond, and all those beautifully laid plans never come to fruition, then it's surprising, it's amazing that God does not despair, that he does not give up, when so much love and so many plans and so many hopes that he has are just dashed and rejected and shrugged off and I don't have any time, I'm not interested, all that kind of thing. And yet he keeps on and on and on and on. 
Just take as an example the final chapters of Ezekiel from 40 through 48. You've got a very detailed description of this kingdom, of this uh, temple that God intended them to build. And I take that reference in chapter 43 there, that this is the law of the house, uh, as really saying that those chapters are command rather than prediction. I'll say that again. They are command rather than prediction. This is what God wanted them to do. You shall do this, in the sense of, I'm commanding you. The exiles returned. They were basically too interested in carving out their own little bit of farmland and having a a decent life for themselves. And as Haggai laments, so God's house was sort of bodged up a bit. And yes, they they did sort of get it up, but... um, and, and they, they repaired it a bit, but it basically laid waste because they were too busy getting on with their own lives. And so that whole very detailed kingdom prophe- um, temple prophecy was, in that sense, unfulfilled. Not, as I say, in that it was a prophecy in the sense of a prediction, but it was a possible future that God wanted to happen, and he potentially enabled it to come true. And yet it didn't. And this is so, as I say, in the case of millions of people. When you think of the people that you have tried to introduce the gospel to, let's say you leave a tract on a tram or on a bus or something, and yeah, some guy picks it up and reads it, and then chucks it away or puts it back on the seat, or takes it home with him and thinks about it later and says, nah, too busy, not for me, whatever. You know, for that person, there's a whole possible future that had been outlined for them, that God had planned for them. There are, Paul says, good deeds that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. And yet we don't, very, very often. And yet God does not despair. The good shepherd seeks for the sheep until he finds it. And that's, um, of course, opened a number of interpretations, but I would simply take that as meaning that Jesus, who is the Good Shepherd, has the attitude that he will search until he finds. He does not despair. He never turns around and says, the sheep's gone too far away. Uh, I've been looking all night, I'm going home, I'm giving up. He does not. He searches until he finds it. Now, the Good Shepherd, Jesus, does not find every sheep that goes astray. That's sad, but it's true. He does not find every sheep that goes astray, and yet the parable says that he searches until he finds it. That's his attitude that he has. So then, quite simply, who God is, and the attitudes that he has, and the attitudes that Jesus has, this is how we should be. Quite simply, verse 36, be merciful as your Father also is merciful. Be ye holy, Peter says, 1 Peter 1, because he is holy. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, forgive one another, even as God forgave you. So then, all the time, we are being asked to be as Jesus and as God. And the height of the challenge is so high that it actually gives us something to live for. Now, that, I, I think that humanity, human beings, are never better than when they are faced with a true challenge. 
when the minority has to rise up above all kinds of discrimination and persecution and opposition to achieve whatever it is, independence in their country or whatever it might be, or freedom or rights or equal rights or whatever human beings in a a secular sense uh, seek for. Now, again, verse 38 Give, and it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall they give to you. For with what measure that you measure, it will be measured to you again. That verse is obviously not true in this life. Because that doesn't happen. The whole idea of generosity and giving would therefore, the whole concept would be meaningless. If in fact... We are to give, thinking that, yeah, well, if I give, I shall receive very much again. And I always think, well, you know, if you Pentecostals and others who think that, or people who think if you give to the Jews and you're going to get blessed or something, you say, okay, well, let's, let's test it out. You know, you, you, you lend me, or give me, you, you give me $50, and uh, presumably tomorrow, day after, you're going to get 100 So let's just, <laughs> let, let's just test it out. And we know that, that that's not how it works. It If that were the case, then giving would be of no meaning. It would actually be a selfishness rather than anything spiritual. So then this giving, which we are to receive back, which we shall be given, is going to be at the Day of Judgment. And yet this uh, measure in which we measure, that will be measured back to us, what's the context? Well, the immediate context is in verse 36 and 37, the previous two verses. Be merciful, judge not, condemn not. Forgive, or release, and you shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Now the giving, therefore, is in the context, releasing, forgiving, not condemning, not judging, being merciful. I don't think it's specifically talking about material wealth, as if you... I mean, if it is, what it will be saying is, if you're materially generous now, well, obviously you're not going to get material blessing back in this life, but you'll get the material blessing when Jesus comes back. Well, no. I don't read that verse 38 as talking about anything material, because it's somehow not appropriate that, okay, if I give you lots of money, if I give you $1,000 right now, well, when Jesus comes back, I'm going to get 10000 Well, what I want $10,000 for in the kingdom of God. It's irrelevant. If I give you my car, I'll get 20 cars in God's kingdom. No. So then the, the giving that he's talking about here, I don't think is material. It is, well, it's pretty clear from the context of 36 and 37. It is mercy, not judging, not condemning, uh, releasing and forgiving. And it is that which we shall be given at the day of judgment. Now, incidentally, he says, Men will give this to you, or they will give this to you in, in that day. And I think the men there, as the AV says, who will give you that, I think that that may refer to, to the angels. In the sort of mechanically, as it were, working out of the Day of Judgment, the angels are, are going to be there and, uh, and active. And so the giving of grace and forgiveness, which... We have to do now. That depend that that will directly affect the grace, lack of condemnation, 
lack of judgment which we will, we will receive when Jesus comes back. And so he, he goes on in that same context, really, to talk about the man with a splinter in his eye trying to pull out the plank from his brother's eye and, of course, making a huge mess of it. Now, I think it's significant that a splinter is a little bit of a plank. It's the same substance, right? A splinter is wood, and a plank is wood. The point is that we have got sin, as it were, in our own uh, eye. And the worst thing about sin is that it distorts your worldview, it distorts your vision, which is what I, I think he's, uh, he's also getting at here. Now, there's something cartoon-like, something grotesquely out of proportion in this little story. It's so cartoon-like that we, we just uh, find it totally unrealistic that someone really could have a plank in their own eye and try to pull the splinter out of their brother's eye. It can't be like that. And I wonder if also the Lord is, uh, is implying that, you know what happens with splinters in the eye? They come out naturally through tears. It's as if he's saying, well, you can't really take a splinter out of someone's eye. It comes out naturally through their own tears. And he's spoken earlier, as we said, about the blessedness of those who are weeping and crying now in whatever way. And so, very often, it's not that we shouldn't help each other, of course, spiritually, but by assuming that we are their saviour, and not the natural processes run by the Lord, operated by the Lord in their lives, we can actually do a lot of harm to people, because we are not seeing properly, because we have a great big beam in our own eye. Now this, as I say, is directly there in the in the context about forgiving and not judging, etc. Now, when he says that in verse 42, that we are to most importantly, uh, first of all, cast out first, isn't proton there, doesn't necessarily mean chronologically, but most importantly, cast out the beam from your own eye. But that uh, Greek word that's translated cast out is the very word that Jesus uses about the rejected being cast forth, the, the bad fish being cast forth um, at, the, at the judgment. It's used about the rejected being cast out at the last day. So I think what he's saying is that we are to judge our own weaknesses as worthy of condemnation. And this opens up the... Uh, the great paradox, maybe the greatest paradox of, of the cosmos, of all time, of all space, everything. Uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.31, talking about the breaking of bread, actually, that if we condemn ourselves, we will not be condemned. If in this life we really come to the realization that I am worthy of condemnation and I cast out, as it were, uh, these things, just as the rejected are going to be cast out, then we will not be condemned. But it is those who do not think that they need to be condemned and have never really looked at themselves seriously, have never really felt that sense that I really should not be in the kingdom. It is those who will not be in the kingdom because they, flesh has to be condemned, either in this life or unfortunately at the day of judgment.
The problem is that there are some of us who, who do do this all the time, condemn ourselves, beat ourselves up, and the process stops there. And it's like any process, really, process of mourning, grieving for those that, that have died, uh, for example, that if you get stuck on one, one step of the process, you, you can stay there the rest of your life. It may be anger. It may be anger with God. It may be self-hatred or, or, or whatever, blame or whatever. Um, you've got to see the whole thing through to the end. And so... If we are feeling that, that beating up of ourselves, that's good. And if you don't know that feeling, you've got a problem. Really, truly, you have a huge problem. But if we can beat ourselves up, quite rightly, to that extent that we, we know that I should be condemned, okay, great, the process is going forward, but go on to the next step, which is to realize that because I have condemned myself, I will not be condemned at the last day. Now, as I say, 1 Corinthians 11.31, if we condemn ourselves, judge ourselves, the AV says, now, in our self-examination, we will not be condemned. And the fact he says that in the context of the breaking of bread, I, I think indicates that he understood that in this quiet moment, as we focus upon the Lord there, as he was, and in a sense as he is, and inevitably, you find yourself examined by his eyes, as it were, then this is the ultimate assistance, if you like, to that process. To realize that, yes, I am condemned, I should be condemned, but because he died for me, his death for me was not in vain, and therefore I will not be condemned. And we can have all joy and peace through believing that.